Hello, and welcome to Demon Casting's Dark Materials Episode 5, the one with Kiefer Sutherland. Sarah. I'm Chris. And I want to know what this episode had to do with Keeper Sutherland. Well, because it's called The Lost Boy. Oh, God, yeah. And he's the original Lost Boy. That was really obvious. Ah. Shame on me. (laughs) I think it's a clever title, actually, Mm. because obviously it refers a bit to to Billy Costa. Mm -hmm. But it also kind of refers to Will. Ooh. I think what I did there. Mm. It means two things at once. It does. Clever. It was a bit of a mixed episode, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a bit. Like, some things were great, some things a little weaker. Yeah. I think if I had to summarise it quickly is what I would say. I would definitely say that. I, I'm, I'm definitely getting more into it. I'm def- they're definitely settling into the world a bit more and kind of getting yeah. into grips with this whole how they're telling it slightly different. Yeah. So how I've kind of imagined it in my head, right, is that the story of Lyra or the his dark material story is like a myth. You're being told it in, in the future when it's already happened, all of this has already taken place. Yeah. And the books are one version of it and this is another version of it. Like imagine a, well, a like different people telling you the same story. This is getting awfully like what you were discussing in our last book episode, which yeah. actually isn't out yet to the listeners, but will be very soon. It's just been slightly delayed by my own incompetence. <laughs> More on that in the episode. <laughs> but in that, you sort of started to talk about imagining it was real and it all got like a bit <laughs> pseudo-religious and scary for me. Are you still on that? Yeah, I've just like fully committed now. I think this is all real. Um, this has all already happened his Dark Materials yeah. is a historical text. We're yeah. back to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's also a bit like the way George Miller describes how Mad Max works. Like those movies yes. are... There. I think that's kind of what I got it from because we were chatting about Mad Max the other day <laughs> yeah. and that's where it's come yeah. from, I think. The idea that all this is kind of other people's myths that they're telling you. Strangers around a campfire. Well, I heard Max did this. It's the same thing. Well, I heard Lyra did this. Yeah, I think if you imagine it that way it suddenly becomes a lot easier to take on board because you're like, it's just different versions and different views of this story. So um, Northern Lights, Sort of Knife, Amber Spyglass are very Lyra-focused. They are. So whoever told that story was just focused on what Lyra was kind of doing. I wonder if it was Lyra that told that story. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, that would be... She would tell it like that because you know what she's like. Um, (laughs) Whereas this is kind of a, a someone telling the story who maybe had a bit more information about certain different other things that were going on. Yeah. Whatever. So, and in that sense, it's kind of like the Bible. Oh, controversial. Because, and again, relevant to what we were saying in the book episode. Yeah, because the Bible has bits that are repeated, but from different people's Yeah, like the, the apostles or whatnot. Mm. Yeah different books written by different folks yeah uh, i think that you're right in in general uh, particularly after episode four of the show i started thinking of it more as a retelling than mm. a 
adaptation and mm -hmm. in that context it's a lot easier to kind of just go along with the changes they're making to see where they go and i have to say one thing that episode four showed me is that the changes they're making definitely can work because they that episode was in some ways radically different from the book but it was one of my favorites and it also kind of suddenly made certain previous decisions they'd made seem to make more sense so yeah yeah so that was good yeah, I think I think we've established by this point that if you're looking for a straight up adaptation, yeah, you're watching the wrong reading, show. Yeah, yeah. That, it, that this ain't it. I mean, that's not to say that you can't criticise things that are different or bits that don't work. Thank God, because we do. Yeah, we really do. Um, but I think there are certain things that it's like just gotta let it go. Yeah. Just. Just gotta Elsa not, it. Not sing. No, I was gonna say don't sing it. I realised as soon as I said it that you'd want to. I'm not gonna. Okay. I'm not gonna. So, are we gonna Go begin? on with it? Yeah. Yeah. So the episode begins with a nice sweeping scene of the coast, uh, still in grasslands. Just, it's interesting that yes. we're not in the snow yet, but, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I mean, I always imagined um, that their, most of their journey in the north from Trollison onwards was just like snow thick throughout. snow. But mm. actually, if you think about where they would be, it would actually make sense to be more like tundra-y. Yeah, I've seen some Attenborough documentaries. It does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I do not like about this scene, and we've talked about this for the movie version and at the beginning of this series even. And even in the book. Yeah, well, yeah, we get, we get a voiceover. Expositionary dialogue voice. Well, expositionary narration voiceover yeah. from Kaiser. I mean, exposition dialogue is bad enough as it is already. It's lazy. But in a voiceover form, it's extra lazy. It's like they're saying, we basically couldn't fit in this information anywhere else. We've taken the easy way out and have just given it to you on a plate. Yeah, and it's a bit annoying, isn't it? It's Kaiser just becomes like the exposition parrot and yeah, sort of does his little C-3PO voice and tells us pretty much about Lyra's destiny and how it's bound with that of a boy. Yeah. Cut to said boy. Yes. And it's Will. Walking along the river in Oxford. I did like the introduction of the shot of him with his reflection juxtaposing him. It reminded me a bit of how he and Lyra are kind of on opposite sides of the stairs in the title sequence mm. and stuff. Or a little bit nod to the parallel world and the way they show that at the beginning mm. of each episode. I must say I was definitely excited when it did come to that bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like, oh, well, season one, we thought they might do it. They've done it. That's cool. I haven't got a problem with it excited to see him and see that bit of the yeah. world and i think Just, we sort of speculated that they'd introduce him in the context of it being boreal spying on him and that's exactly what they do mm, maybe yeah. a little earlier than some people would have expected earlier than i would have expected mm. at the beginning of the series but you know although we are five episodes in now yeah but so it's still really not we're that still deeply entrenched in Northern Lights territory. Like, oh, this is yeah. another thing they bring forwards. But again, they do it in the context of showing you stuff that probably would have been happening anyway, but you never saw in the mm. book. So I think that's okay. Yeah, that's that's fair. So once we've had that little... I mean, I don't know if it's worth saying something about what Kaiser does say about what? Lyra and her destiny. Um, it. It's a little bit of a weird one because we basically had the same conversation in the, the book episode that we've just discussed yeah a lot of it coming from seraphina Fina, yeah but it's similar stuff it's about what lyra or who lyra is 
um, that she's kind of like this destined child, child, that she can't know what her destiny is, that if she does know, she'll fail. Yeah. Which raises a whole load of questions yeah. about what destiny is. Well, she says she'll end destiny. Yeah. So she's destined to end destiny, which is just confusing. Odd. Yeah. The whole if she gets told she'll fail thing. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We've we've discussed this in the book podcast. And I mean, the TLDR version for here is that um, the whole thing about destiny and the fact that you've got a predetermined fate, like if that could be changed by knowing that destiny existed, it wouldn't really be destiny because destiny surely is just this is a fixed point outcome and that's mm. all there is to it. So the fact that she can end destiny as well, we we speculated a lot on what exactly destiny means and the implications yeah. of it. As you might be able to tell, both of us have talked about it so much that we just don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's fair to say that destiny as a concept is tricky because for it to truly be destiny, it has to be the fixed destination. If that can be changed, particularly if it can be changed by the people within it, then it's not truly destiny. It's still just some form of choice, maybe restricted choice. Mm. Maybe that's yeah. what we're getting at here. Which then begs the question, well, if Lara's destined to do that, she's not going to fail. So kind of why try? Yeah, but if she can fail, it. then she's not destined. And I don't think we ever will get to the bottom mm -hmm. of the semantics of this and why it's been used in this way. But it does kind of sound epic, let's be honest. And sometimes you write stuff because it sounds epic when you're trying to entertain people. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just not meant for this level of scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, maybe Phil would have a better explanation for it. I would love to ask yeah. him. That'd be nice to have a chat with Phil. Maybe we could get him for an interview one time. I mean... <laughs> you don't know. Maybe one day. Pull a few strings. Do you reckon we could kidnap him? Oh, we could definitely kidnap him. Could we kidnap him and get away with it? That's the question. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. That's always Would he answer question. our questions if we'd, he might give us the wrong answers? <sighs> he might be so scared that we'd get to know everything, though. Like he, like might think, he might think that we're going to hurt him because when I'm stood there with a blowtorch naked, I'm not going to do this. I've realised that one of the emerging themes in this podcast is that I'm some sort of maniac that locks people in cupboards and does terrible things. I've never once done that. You've just thought about it a lot. Everyone thinks about it, don't they? Yeah. Okay, good. Glad I'm not alone. I don't feel alone. <laughs> Swiftly on <laughs> to the next scene. Um, we see the Egyptians travelling along again. Um, they have tanks, which is kind of cool, but yeah. like mini tanks. Well, they're, they're like snow cats. <laughs> yes, they are. Really. I just thought of them as mini tanks. I don't know why. Because they, they, they track vehicles, and yeah. I liked them too. I also noted the use of snow cats. Um, at first, I thought they were half tracks, which is all a bit like Nazi, but mm. not specifically Nazi, Actually, but all a bit World War Two. I might call them baby tanks for okay. now because that sounds quite cute. Yeah, let's call them baby tanks. Like yeah. the baby tank in Tank Girl. The comics, not the film. Okay. I have I have neither seen the film nor read the comics, and I know that I should be ashamed of myself. I think reading the comics is nice. Not having seen the film, I mean, it, even the people that made it hated it, so, you know. Fair. You don't have to have seen it. Although, just because just, just Tank Girl's another one of my kind of bay ladies, Margot Robbie is optioned to produce a Tank Girl film, and I believe she's going to be playing Tank Girl. I'm sure you've discussed this in a previous episode. Okay, I'll leave it there then. I'm just looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Lyra has a little like bantery chat with with Lee. 
Yeah, they discuss their mission, his apparent laziness, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, he's a bit sort of like he's chilling out on the um on, on the, the pack down balloon, yeah, being dragged along by a half track, mini tank, whatever. Which is we're exactly it. what I do. Why the hell is anyone walking when they have those to pull things along? Yeah, that is a good question. They're idiots. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't even tell you. No, I would definitely be <laughs> Everyone reclined. should be riding on something if that's the option. Yes. Especially because they go into war. They don't want to be tired when they get there. They're very tired for a war. It's the worst thing. The worst. Uh, it's kind of, I guess, a bit of a bringing Lee and Lyra close together again. You know, they're yeah. having this kind of sparring of... Um, wits. Yeah, wits and... <laughs> The fact, that, the fact that a 12-year-old girl holds her own against this guy maybe tells us more about her wit than his, I don't know. Yeah. But I don't, there's not much kind of happens in terms of content of the conversation. More or I less. Remember. The, the main thing is that Lyra sort of says, do you, do you fancy our chances of getting the kids back? And Lee basically says no, but whatever, we'll give it a oh, go. You it want me to happy. say yes? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, Lyra. If anyone can, it's us or something like that, mm. and, you know. But Lyra sort of says, you're a hard man to like, <laughs> in a very joking way. Yeah. And then we are back to... Will's Oxford, as we can call it now. Yes. Yeah, and Boreal and, and his non-hacker accomplice. Yeah, and random man one. Yeah, I believe he's called the pale man in the uh, okay. credits. That makes me think of uh, Labyrinth, because I think the guy with the eyes on his... With the eyes and the hands. You mean Pan's Labyrinth? Labyrinth yeah. del Forno. Oh, that was lovely. Can you do that again? Labyrinth del Forno. I'm just going to get you to say that later, like, just repeatedly. That was the Spanish title of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, that. anyway, I've probably fucked something up. Yeah. Um, sorry, Pan's Labyrinth, Labyrinth. not Labyrinth. Not... Yeah. not the Bowie codpiece movie. No. <laughs> it reminds me of that for reasons that I've just now... Oh, the pale man, the yeah. guy with the eyes. I think that's what he's called in that. Is it really? Yeah. Fair enough. So now I'm just going to imagine that. Yeah. But the pale man and Lord Boreal... Basically spying on Will in his yeah, house. Yeah, watching the house. Again, kind of what we thought might be their way yeah. of introducing Will if they brought him in early. They know that Will comes home at the same time every day to see his mum. Yeah, he seems um, to be caring for her. Mm-hmm. So we've got that a little bit that, yeah. you know... He's clearly a, a caring young lad kind of thing. Part of responsibility. Yes. Importantly, we know social services aren't involved. Yeah. That's all that's a bit sinister. It's hints that maybe Boreal's thinking if he interferes, even if he has to vanish them, maybe mm. no one will notice for a bit. That's that's very sad. And I'm also like, why the hell are social services not involved? Yeah. Cuts are affecting Will and his mum as well as like everyone else. I mean, that's very real and very topical. That's a big problem in Britain at the moment is mm. sort of the social services in particular being overstretched in terms of caring for people in the community, Yeah. Um, which is entirely an invention of our present government, I think most people would say. I'm not saying that's my opinion. I'm just saying Same. that some people hold that opinion. Impinion. Impinion, mm -hmm. yeah. I was thinking about Boris Johnson and just thinking about him makes you a little more stupid. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Um, Boris Johnson's the British Trump, get him out. Uh, and we're completely non-partisan here. Completely. So. <laughs> um, every time you tangent, I go, 
Well, we, we pretty much go straight back yeah. to the north after all that. It's the titles is what it is. Yeah. Um, we have our titles. We enjoy those. We sing along. I think my dad's enjoying the music increasingly week by week. I've invented a game for myself where yeah. I enjoy singing the Game of Thrones theme over the title credit and giggling because it feels subversive. Oh, you so bad. Oh, I'm such a maverick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my, my dad actually turned to me and said, oh, I really like this music, and then hummed along to the rest of it. So. Yeah, the music's grown on me a lot, actually. Yeah. It's nice noticing the little themes and stuff, and you do notice throughout mm. this episode as well. I think there was a bit when earlier when Lyra was talking with Lee and his theme mm. starts coming in a little bit. It's quite nice. And they'll become more apparent because the thing about... Um, if you assign a theme or a light motif to a character, mm. the only way you know it belongs to that character is because they have to keep playing it when they show you the character. So you'll become much more aware of them as it goes on and they establish the cultural link, if you like, between the character and their motif. Mm. Just say that then. then. <laughs> um, we are then back in the north and Lyra chats with John Farr. Yeah. He's asking for an alethiometer reading, alethiometer, a magic pocket watch reading, reading. about is. Bolvangar. And how it is protected. Mm-hmm. And she sees a company of Tartars guarding it with guns, some big, some small, and fences. Oh, oh, and they have wolf demons as well. Does she say that? I don't think she says it because I keenly mm-hmm. listened for that and she does in the book. Because she then does. it tells them that this is a specific Tartar legion. Yes, that's true. She but might. I don't think she says Maybe I'm just it here. Getting excited about wolf demons. They do have the wolf demons. Yeah, they do. They do. We'll see that. But the important thing about this alethiometer reading, did you hear how difficult it was for me to say that right? You call it the magic pocket watch, love. You'll be fine. MPW. Yeah. <laughs> Shorten it down no. as much as possible. Um, is that she gets a warning yeah. from the magic pocket watch? Yeah, and she sort of. Wants to know what it means. Far dismisses it as like it's going to be warning you. We're going into a blood battle. I do like that. He's like it'll be warning you of everything. Interesting that he used the phrase blood battle rather than blood bath. I wonder mm. if it was written blood bath and he just turned around, not John Far, but the actor obviously, and went, "This just seems a bit like odd that he'd say that's what they're walking into," and ad libbed his own version of the line. Or if that is how it was written. Or he kept saying it wrong, and then in the end they were just like. We've done this like 20 times. We'll just have to keep this version. No, I'd like to think he didn't get it wrong. I'd like yeah. to think he ad-libbed it because he quite rightly said John Farr would never leave his lead his people into a bloodbath knowingly. Mm. Yeah. Also, I'd argue that most battles are bloody. So a blood battle is essentially just a battle. Oh, yeah. But anyway, that is somewhat irrelevant. Yeah, because Lyra pobbles off to see Coram to tell him about the alethiometer reading. She kind of does this in the book as well. She doesn't get the answer she wants yeah. from one person. She sees another. It's pretty much like when you're a kid and mum says no, so you go and ask dad. Yeah. Um, so she tells him about the alethiometer warning. She doesn't really know exactly what it's telling her. She, she thinks there's a ghost maybe in a village. Yeah, in a valley nearby. Yeah, but she's not sure exactly what it means Mm. um she wants to go and have a look she thinks it means she should go and have a look yeah well i think the um alethiometer is actually sort of telling her that she should go and have a look yeah but quorum's against it yeah he sort of he's quick to remind her that they're there for the missing children and also sort of says do you want to be the one to tell the costas that you're you're taking us on a detour sort of thing Mm. Uh, and he also reminds her that 
Coulter's hunting her hard. Yes. And she says, I thought you might have quoted this, have you? Oh, no, I haven't. No, she basically says, I can't run away from my mother for the rest of my life. And Chris cried. <laughs> yeah, and I went, oh, God, me too. Like, me too. And I hid under the bed. <laughs> and I remembered spiders live under my bed and I ran. And then your mum reached out and said, hello, Chris, what are you doing under the bed? Hello, Chris, you're still my little boy. <laughs> and I hung myself. Obviously, I didn't do that. Whoa, there. <laughs> that escalated. Um, so I, I thought this bit did quite well at solving one of the issues I had with the book, which is that they really easily let her go in the book. She does talk to both of them, but yeah. they do kind of go, she does OK, a... then. A bit of a liar, a gentle persuade, but it doesn't take that long, really, does it? No, and I think in the podcast I actually brought up the fact that it was just seemed a bit weird that they let a little girl, yeah, even though well, she was Yorick, yeah, go did. off on, on this sort of whim. Definitely. So this kind this of made a bit, a bit more bit... convincing, yeah. yeah. I think in the book at this point, people start treating her like the golden child, and it, it's almost like we get told about her destiny and stuff as a way to explain that. Whereas mm. in this, she's being treated like child first, golden second. Yeah. Still. Because I think it's because they know she's important, but they don't know in what way or quite yeah. how yet. And she's a kid as well. Yeah. And, you know, they're still trying to look after her. Mm. Um, all that's fair enough, mm. I think. Um, Lara speaks then to Mark Oster about whether to go or not. And yeah. I, I did actually quite like this scene. I thought it was played quite nicely between the two of them. Yeah. And time's passed as well, hasn't it, at this point? Yeah. Because a it's bit. evening now. So we get the we get the sense that Lyra's held on to this idea all day. Mm. Mark Costa kind of takes her to one side to talk to her about it. Mm. And she kind of asks for more details. She looks quite emotional almost immediately. Yeah, as well. because I think she wants to kind of trust Lyra, but but at the same time she's like desperate to get Billy back. And then well, in the end Mark Costa sort of says, you're asking me to trust you. And Lyra's like, no, I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust this, this, the magic pocket watch. Which I'm not sure which one I'd least like to trust a 12-year-old girl or a magical device. It's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah. And does Mark Costa really put that much faith in the magic pocket watch yet? We know that Vada Corum does, mm. but... But I suppose, this... I mean, they've seen that what she reads from it happens is true. That's true. So... But one thing I thought about when Mark Costa becomes emotional and takes her away is, on the one hand, I was thinking, is she emotional because she's not sure whether to trust her and this is kind of taking her off of her mission for her son? Or does she think that what Lyra is about to tell her is that the alethiometer has told her something about Billy? Mm. And I'm thinking then, is she, is she frightened because she's thinking that Lyra is being led to Billy, the ghost child, you know? But why would she think that? Well, I suppose the most pertinent thing for her is that Billy's missing mm. and kid comes to you and says the alethiometer is telling me about a ghost and, and you in your head you might connect yeah and think, what do. if it's telling you about my son yeah. it is and maybe I'm colouring it by my knowledge that that is yeah. exactly what it's telling her about there's a possibility as well that she's actually worried about Lyra well yeah who is just you know wants to go off in a in a place where there are kind of enemies everywhere where. Yeah. Oh boy, are there. And she wants to go off on this kind of dangerous side mission. So there could also be an element of that. So Mark Oster tells Lyra that she needs to think about it. Yeah. Very mum behaviour. I'll think mm. about it. Mm. Possibly. 
<laughs> and then we go back to Will's Oxford. And Will is, at, Will is at school. Yeah, and he's being slyly picked on in the corridor by some of the kids called a freak and stuff. I just, at this point, say now that Amir Wilson, I think, is... Sorry, Daphne Keene. Amir Wilson's the best child actor <laughs> in the show. I'm not saying Daphne Keene's bad. I think mm. she's actually pretty decent, Yeah, pretty good, but I've really believed Amir Wilson almost instantly. Yeah. Like, I thought he was great. He's got a certain quiet kind of thoughtfulness to him, I think. Mm. He's just believable in the role they've cast him in. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't seem to have any friends from what we can see at school. He does seem to get picked on. Yeah. Um, Amir Wilson does not look like the kind of kid who would get picked on at school. He seems quite a bit bigger than a lot of the kids that are picking on him, but, you know, that doesn't but mean anything. He plays it in a way that he does kind of make himself seem a little bit quieter, like you can imagine it. I don't know. I don't exactly know how he does it. But seems like the kid who's trying to pass unnoticed. Yeah. So kind of is is seen as being weird, not because of himself necessarily, but we do kind of find out later on it's because of his mum and, yeah. and the situation she's in. Picking on him because of his mum, for sure. And on that, we then just cut to his mum leaving the mm-hmm. house. Yeah. And Boreal kind of pops out of nowhere almost, out <laughs> of the driveway or whatever, and basically pretends to be a former comrade of her husband, Colonel John Parry, mm-hmm. and starts asking after him. Um, I no. do not like this bit. I do not like it when people pretend to be other people. Yeah. Boreal uses the alias name that he continues to use in the books as well, doesn't he? I believe. It's gone out of my head and I didn't write it down, which was <laughs> stupid of me, but I'm pretty sure the name he gives her is the kind of alias that he... Is it Charles something? I, I genuinely can't remember and Charles. we're just going to be doing the whole is it Charles something. I could Google it, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave it for our dedicated audience to shout it at me. Or they, they can just go in their heads, it's such and such, yeah. you idiots. I can't believe I've forgotten it. I was like, I won't need to write that down. Totally needed to write it down. Anyway... He, you know, he's asking about uh, John Parry and basically when she reveals that he's dead, he feigns condolences and sadness. And he does it in a really realistic way as well. He he plays someone faking those feelings really well, I thought. That's the weirdest thing. He's not just yeah. like... Because he can act better than what he's acting in that scene, pretending to be someone else. Yeah. It's like an actor That's taking it down a Lord Boreal yeah. acts being Lord, surprised yeah. well, which means that in turn... The actor must Harry be able to and, act. Yeah, like he kind of, he plays Boreal playing someone else. It's quite good. Yeah, it's it's impressive. So he yeah. seems genuinely and shocked. He sort of tries to offer his help and tries to make her take what I presume is his phone number. Mm. Um, she's all a bit flustered. There's by a bit this. of an over familiar handhold. Yeah, he kind of grabs her hand and is like, if you need me, and sort of tries to put this, I guess, his number into her hand. And I couldn't tell if she took it or not. She seemed hesitant to. Yeah, she seemed a bit confused. Um, But what we do find out as well is that he, as in John Parry, um, was supposed to have died 13 years ago. He's been missing a while. Well, almost as long as Will's been alive, probably. Yeah, longer Um, than Lyra's been alive. Yeah, and... He was lost in an expedition to Alaska. Yes. But a body was never found, obviously. We know why. Because he Um, was going between worlds. (laughs) But clearly they they don't know that, so that's... I guess that gives information to Boreal. Or do they? Put a pin in that. 
But yeah, and then as she turns away and walks off, uh, Boreal just, his feigned look of warmth turns to ice. It's just great. <laughs> it's so good. Boreal's great. He is, he is brilliant, like, just... He's almost he's almost up there with Coulter with me now. In fact, possibly as an actor, I'd say he's better than. Mm. That's Thing is, controversial. when you're a baddie, you get to do so much more interesting stuff. That's true. I think a lot of actors dream of playing a boreal type character. Yeah. We cut to Will boxing after yeah. school and losing. Yeah, he keeps getting hit down, um, and then his mum arrives in a panic, which is yeah. exactly what you do not want when oh, you God, have a, no. well, anyway when you're a teenager, but. Especially so when your mum has like issues that make her she sort of runs subject in of ridicule, panicky, a little bit incoherent at times. Mm-hmm. The other boy teases him, and loses his temper, and they have a little scuffle. Uh, but and she sort of leaves the room, and Will chases her down. Yeah, but he goes after his mum because the the teacher tells him to. Yeah. Nice, actually supportive teacher. Yeah, the teacher slash coach kind of seems to be looking out for Will quite well, doesn't he? Yeah, Um, We sort of see hints of her paranoia Mm. in Will's reaction because obviously she's kind of telling the truth. This strange man did just emerge out of nowhere and start talking at her, but Will doesn't believe her, so we get this sense that paranoia is very much a thing with Will's mum. Which is... which is what makes it especially sad what's happening is that, you know, like she is telling the truth and therefore she must be incredibly scared because, you know, what is more scary than seeing things and being worried about something but nobody believing you? Yeah. And and then she gets more flustered at the lack of belief and starts doing sort of obsessively counting bricks in a nearby mm -hmm. wall um, and Will's trying to calm her, etc. I just ask, okay, this may get cut, it can be cut. Mm -hmm. As someone with mental health problems... Yes. When you see a character portrayed in this way where she's being disbelieved because that's just your mental illness causing you to think that, but actually it's true, does that make you worry that there might be mentally ill, say, paranoid people out there who go, yes, mine's true too, or do you think I'm just being silly? What is in, do you think they might be they might be real? Like, there might be a mentally ill person watching that who then almost takes that as a role model and is like, no, my delusions are true too because hers are and it's just other people that don't believe me. Or do you think I'm just way off the mark with that? I think it would depend completely on how the delusions work because if you have a delusion that is very different from that, then you might be like, well, obviously that's not true. But, but mine, mine is. is. Yeah. Because I know, I mean, this is a bit off topic, but actually from the city we're from or live in, this is going to pin it down a bit. There was a professional skateboarder who had similar delusions to what she's having and kind of lost his career and all the rest of it. And I was just, and did similar things to her. Well, mm. she seems to. He had to count things and look for patterns, and the patterns would tell him what was going to happen next when he was thought he was being mm-hmm. stalked and stuff. And I did wonder, like, Obviously, a really big part of treating someone who's like that is making them understand the difference between a, a, a fantasy and reality and between the delusion and, and mm. their actual real thoughts sort of thing. And I do wonder if there might be people out there that kind of almost want to believe that what's happening to them is real because they, they find it hard to accept its illness and maybe they see that as a kind of, or do you think I'm just being dumb? It's okay to say I'm being <laughs> dumb. Because I, I have no say, internal comparison for something that I would need to know more. You'd need to know more about it because yeah. you'd need to know 
because there's lots of different mental health conditions where psychosis and delusions and things are involved and they're different depending on what kind of things going on yeah so i think it would depend kind of on that on how kind of deep into it you were um yeah how aware you were of the fact that you have a mental health condition Mm. whether you're medicated or not etc i mean that's a really long way of saying i'm being dumb (laughs) yeah but i don't know either i'm just saying i think there's a lot of factors that play into it okay but it's in like it's interesting that they're kind of because i don't think they're portraying her insensitively at all no because they also they show her kind of her kind of fear as well and I think they're quite sensitive in portraying how hard it is for her. She's not just, you know, some crazy woman that um, Will has to look after. Mm. She's a person in her own kind of right who is obviously afraid. And, you know, like she says, she's, she's like, I, I know, I know, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I couldn't help it. And yeah. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was quite sensitive. Mm. But, um, but anyway, I mean, Will does calm her and sort yeah. of after he's gone and explained to the coach and the coach has done more very sage advice yes about looking after her and himself which they, will does kind of brush off a little bit he though. does a bit but i think that's probably all too common yeah i think i'm guessing that will probably feels that it is his responsibility to look after her and when it's them as a unit you know and he's got control over it you know he doesn't want anyone else kind of interfering in that and maybe he's worried that if he can't cope and she can't cope, he'll be taken away from her because he's young. I mean, he'd be yeah. taken into care if they didn't work as yeah. a family unit. Well, the words he uses are, uh, you don't need to worry, I'm not at risk. Mm. And that's, that's a very... I mean, very he says we're not at risk. risk. But yeah. same. The actual kind of thing, like at-risk children and stuff, that's a very, you know, that's a specific kind of line almost of, like, social care yeah. thing. So he's probably aware of what, if they were deemed to be at-risk, what that would mean. It would mean that he would get taken away, probably. Yeah. Or she might get sectioned. Yeah. So I think there's a there's an element of fear in Will there that, that she's going to get taken away or he will yeah. get taken away. I think on the topic of those scenes... Just say, like, they they play out like a fairly standard but well-written modern drama, um, mm. and I really like them. They're, they're kind of a odd change of pace from the more fantasy setting, but I think as scenes in and of their own right, they work. Yeah. Regardless of whether we could say that he's been introduced too early or not, I'm willing to go with that because I think they probably know what they're doing. I'm mm. more willing to go with it now. But uh, the scenes themselves and the way they're acted between everyone, I think, are really, really good. Yeah, I think they make a really nice contrast, actually, between mm. the more, the more yeah. fantasy world. It gives you that sort of, like, weird topsy-turvy feeling when you when you flip back to the other world, and it, yeah. it, I don't know, it just has a really strange effect that's quite... I mean, I wonder if it's nice. being done very intentionally to let us know that Will's Oxford is our Oxford, it's our world. Yeah, because, if yeah, like you say, it feels very contemporary, it feels very much like a modern... Mm. drama there's nothing in there to make you think otherwise it's just it's basically very down to earth and very familiar in a way yeah definitely um so yeah then we do go back to the north and to lyra's world and uh, lyra and marcos are having a a sort of sleepover of sorts in their tent with with kaiser (laughs) yeah i don't know why they're just they're just kind of laying in the tent yeah like 
as if they're in about to be photographed for like an Argos catalogue. I mean, it's a it's a good shot setup basically, and Kaiser's just around a lot now. Like mm-hmm. that was never really hinted at before, although we did sort of see him following the Egyptians a bit from afar in the last episode. He's just in it now. He's part of their party, and everyone seems to have accepted that. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. you'd have no choice, but you know, he's there. Yeah, um, Lyra says that because she's looking up at the sky when mm. when she's asked why she's doing that she says she's looking for Asriel what <laughs> i don't know if lyra understands what is happening at this point because i don't know what she expects to see she expecting to see like Asriel's face just in mm. the sky <laughs> well she's seen the city up there Maybe maybe a she thinks she'll see Asriel wandering around in the city if she looks long enough. Or maybe it is more like a kind of Mufasa face in the sky, like Lion <laughs> King, right? remember who you are, kind of thing. Yeah. It's a bit of a weird one. Um, but it does make Kaiser tell her and... Um, Mark Costa. Yes, about the plans. Yeah, and he sort of says, you know, you're not that silly because... Asriel is right to be looking for other worlds. He could get across there. Um, he's allowed to carry his research, even though he's under house arrest by Yoffa Ragnarsson, because yeah. he's canny, Yoffa is. Yeah. He, he knows that that might be valuable. Yeah, duplicitous, which again is something we've recently, recently talked about in the book, yeah. on Yoffa's motivations for allowing the research to continue. And yeah. I do think it's more or less that he's kind of playing both sides a bit. Yeah. Maybe thinks the research will be valuable to him. And, and it's just another expositionary dialogue bombshell, really, from Kaiser, mm. the exposition parrot. He does tell her that she's kind of right to trust her instincts. Yeah. And that kind of he does agree that she should go to look for the ghost. Um, Mark Oster kind of listens to this and tells Lyra that she needs to speak to John Farr. Farr Decorum goes for a walk. He likes his walks, does Farr Decorum. As the elderly often do. <laughs> he just likes going with these little night walks and I knew what was going to happen at yeah. this point but I got a little bit excited who should fly in? why it's none other than Cersei Lannister and she's high as fuck <laughs> I mean sorry Serafina Pakala Pakala yes yeah okay so there's a few things to start off with one how she's flying no cloud pine if you look carefully towards the end of the scene she does have a bit of cloud pine in her hand Oh, okay. But it's more like a little... So she's not riding it like a broomstick. She's holding no. a little spray like what the console had. Yeah, a bit had. bigger than that. Like a, like a sort of, I don't know, say like a bouquet-sized... So, so they're not, they've not gone full on like cloud pine as a witch's broomstick, which is fine. Might might look a bit too tropey and cheesy, although I did imagine it that way. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's kind of written that way. Mm-hmm. Kind of, yeah. If you, if you look at some of the original pictures that... Uh, Philip Pullman drew there is one of uh, a witch with a cloud pine actually it's Serafina Pakala with a cloud pine that is kind of broomstick sort of length but she's holding it more kind of in her arms while she's flying okay so she's holding it more like the way you'd hold like a ski lift pole or something (laughs) like at this point I'm starting to imagine what if they'd Baz Luhrmann it you know the way you did with Romeo and Juliet so whenever they have a line where it's like put thy rapier up the camera whips round to show the fact that on the side of their pistol it says like rapier 5000 or whatever yeah that like she flies in on her cloud pine but it's actually like a rocket cycle like Flash Gordon style but it's called the cloud pine or something (laughs) I like that (laughs) (laughs) flying blind on a rocket cycle (laughs) etc yeah Um, so that's a little bit odd 
I thought the movement itself of them flying looked quite cool, but mm. it just seemed a little bit weird. Yeah. Um, how she looks. I mean, we've seen the casting shots. She looks a bit more warrior-y. She's got these scars that actually look like what you get if you've been struck by lightning, which is an interesting look. Yeah. I've... I saw the the sort of promo shots and I thought I will see what it looks like in the TV show before I properly cast judgment. Yeah. Don't really like how she looks. She does look a lot like Cersei after she's been shamed. That's why I yes. said the Cersei thing, not because I thought that it was yeah. Cersei. And I'm a little bit gutted because I used to watch a BBC programme called Lip Service, which is about... Lesbians. Yeah, lesbians in Scotland, basically. And Ruta Gedmintis, who plays Serafina Pakala, was a, a very important character. She played Frankie in that. And she was just... She was pretty good in that. And anybody who's queer will... Well, a lady who's queer will probably remember... What you can't um, see is Sarah kind of starting to blush as she dances around what she's really trying to say. <laughs> yeah, she was pretty hot in that. Yeah, and um, just and generally just cool. But in this, she's just sort of... I got very mixed feelings from her because she starts off, she's been a bit of a bitch as a character. I mean, Cora mm. asks for help and sort of feels that the Egyptians might be outmatched with what they're going into. And she's just like, oh, you've found your fight then. Like, all right, mm. c- you could have just said no. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut that C word. Yes. <laughs> I might beep it. Yeah. Um, they talk of their son and Azriel, and Serafina drops more exposition about, like, charged particles in the aurora making the barrier between worlds thin. Yeah. And it's all just like, okay, so you've come down, you've been a bitch, you've dumped a load of patronising science on me, you look like Cersei Lannister on a bad day. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're upsetting at least two queer podcasters right now. yeah I think it's difficult when you're talking about how people look because some people will have very clear ideas in their head Mm. of how people looked and I try not to get too hung up on it because you can't please everyone in that sense but yeah she's just very different from what I thought so I did actually really like Eva Green in the film version in terms of her appearance Mm. I thought she was meant to be a lot more willowy kind of longer hair the sort of um they describe it like scraps of silk rather than kind of this sort of really rigid weirdly rigid dress that she's wearing yeah I don't think the costume was an issue I'll be honest I don't think for me it was her appearance so much she did look different than I imagined the hair was terrible but you get this impression of like a wild warrior woman maybe more like a picked or something almost I don't know know, that hair looked too like she looked like she had some hair gel on there maybe she had some cloud pine like if she'd had like big sort of bushy hair well, like looking a bit unkempt, I could have looked like that. something out of Made Marion and Her Merry Men. Yeah, great TV show. Look mm, that one. Excellent. Um, yeah, but it was more. She came in. She was a bit of a bitch to Father Corum, and mm-hmm. maybe she would be after the amount of time they've been apart. But I still think it was a bit harsh. Yeah. She dumps her expositionary dialogue, and after they've spoken about the sun and the fact that like Azriel's going to bring a great war and all this sort of stuff, like mm. Corum gets emotional. James Cosmo, he's doing real well as Coram now and for me he saves this scene and she gets a bit emotional too and softens and that's a nice bit in the scene Mm. and then she leaves and I'm like it was very fast it was a whistle stop tour of Serafina Bacala and I'm not entirely sure I liked it as an introductory scene to Mm. her I've realised we're meant to be saying Peckler and we've completely forgotten about it. I'm that. not going to do that. We've discussed why I don't like that. I'm going to keep calling her Peckler. Pe- I'm not going to call her Peckler. I'm going to keep calling her Pecala. Okay. 
We already know that I play fast and loose with how you men to pronounce Oof. things anyway. You libertine. <laughs> I know, aren't I? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, and she also says, by the way, Kaiser's going to stay around. And it's like, well, we kind of, he has been, I mean. Yeah, but then that was kind of nice because she was like, he sees everything I see. He, essentially, that's her soul, mm. if we actually remember what demons are. Well, yeah, so true, she's true. leaving that kind of with, she's basically saying, I'm going to be with you. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, she actually, she does say that, doesn't she? she does, fair point. She and that's does. the thing, I quite, I like her better at the end of the scene than the beginning. It's yeah. almost like the, there's two sides to Serafina, <laughs> and I'm not keen on the one that she arrived as. <laughs> yeah. We do get a little bit of an important moment when she confirms that there are other worlds. Yeah. So as part of that conversation, they're talking about Lord Asriel. Mm. Father Coram thinks he's kind of mad to be doing that, but Serafina's like, actually, mm, we've kind of known about it for ages. Yeah, we can't see it. But, but it's, the, it's there in the dust. That's when she yeah. says about the dust. She does lots of things with her hands. And she does hand acting in that part. I feel great kinship with, yeah. with her flamboyant hand gestures because mm. I, I do that particularly when I'm A, lecturing or B, podcasting, I've come to realise. Nice flamboyant hand gesture to mm. carry you through. Yeah, I agree, James Cosmo, brilliant in this bit. He's, his tears, just like seeing an old man cry is just like the worst thing. Stop it. There's nothing worse than watching an old man cry. Yeah. I did also kind of like it when she says about the fact that she can sort of still see him. So he's like, you know, I, I'm basically, I'm old now. And, yeah, and she's, she's like, like, yeah, but so I, I can, can still see. the man see. inside. Like, and I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it is a weird scene because it's both good and bad at the same time. Yeah, it gives me the mixed feelings. Yes. It does. And then Far goes off back to Lyra. Mm-hmm. Has a little chat with her. That's, that's about the alethiometer more and could it be wrong? And Lyra says, no, nah, don't think so. Oh, there's also some cute little banter about whether she calls him Lord Far or John Far. Mm. So she only calls him Lord Far when she wants something. And she's like, really, Lord Far? Cheeky. Yeah, that was quite cute. That <laughs> yeah. was very Lyra. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was. Um, but anyway, he basically says, all right, you can go and look for this ghost with Yorick. He asks Yorick, kind of charges him with taking care of her. And John Farr also sort of commands Lyra to return before a certain time. So she, he says, tomorrow night, you've yeah. got to be back by then. You find what you find, you come back and tell us this is <laughs> what you've got to do, and then you can go. Yeah, and then Lee and Yorick and Lyra are kind of discussing the side quest ahead and the mm. alethiometer. And Lee's a little, I can't say Lee's a bit annoying in this episode. He's a bit too fast and loose with the sarcasm. Yeah, but I can just imagine kind of hangs him... out and questions things and is a bit. Sarcastic. I can imagine him like taking the piss out of Yorick for for letting Lyra ride on him because he's like, oh, Yorick's first ride, and <laughs> which sounds a Different. bit wrong. <laughs> um, and Yorick's kind of disgruntled by it. Yeah, but... I just think it's almost like like honestly, Lee. The only thing Lee does in this episode is be a bit sarcastic and he kind of provides a little emotional comfort later on. I was going to say, later on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, but even still, take Lee out of the episode, would it have suffered that much? Could could Lee's job have been done by someone else? Um, When we talk about some of those scenes later on, I feel like I am going to argue against that. So can we put a pin in it? We can. Lee kind of expresses concern about whether the alethiometer actually tells truth and is actually good for anything but Yorick actually says that he he does yeah 
So for whatever reason, Yorick is Well, like... it told him where his armour was. True and that. I do think that the key to Yorick's heart is through his armour. Yeah. And, um, and then they ride off through the snow, right? And, and, it's, and it's brilliant and it's pure Northern Lights or the Golden Compass. Oh, we're going to agree to differ here. No, I like it. It's a scene. It's great. It is. You're right about all of that. But also, it's the worst example of CGI slash compositing yet. Oh, really? Yeah. I oh, see. I didn't notice. I was. I was just I mean, too lost in the magic. It's by no means bad, but it is not as good as the other yeah. visual work they've done. And I think it's because an awful lot of it is CG, and it just kind of shows a bit. And and Lyra mm. doesn't look like she's quite there. Like the lighting doesn't quite match and stuff. Mm. It's by no means obvious, and it's by no means bad. It's just not as good. Mm. I just I had to point that out. Yeah, yeah, clearly I've not got the technical eye because I was just loving it. I was just like, yes. And that's the important thing, please the audience with it, you know. That's why I'm saying it's not bad, it's just not as good. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they think of Northern Lights, I mean, partly because of the way the book covers are, think of Lyra and Yorick. Yeah, Lyra on Yorick's back. And, and it is, it's an iconic image and I'm glad they included it. Got. Yeah. I would have hated it if they didn't. Yeah. Uh, Will is making dinner for his mum. Yes, back in his Oxford. Mm Mm-hmm. He is making omelette. Yeah. Which I believe people were happy about because, as far as I'm aware, this is also what he makes in the book. Okay. I don't remember that part, but let's just go with it. Omelette confirmed. So, obviously, he's caring for her. There's a bit of a role reversal here. He's a bit more like a parent. Yeah. And she does actually compare him to his dad, quite favourably overall. Yes, um, although he's just like, yeah, you've said that before. <laughs> yeah, but she says, you know, you'll you'll take up his mantle and he's kind of like to, to help the weak fix this broken world type of thing. He's a bit like, what do you mm. mean? Yeah, it all gets a little bit weird about yeah. that point because when he says take on his mantle, that sounds very serious mm-hmm. and very official. Yeah, and I, I start to wonder around here and throughout with some of the conversations with his mum, is she supposed to be able to see his fate almost? Does she kind of know what's coming somehow? Well, this is the thing. I can't tell, and it's something I wondered as well, like whether she has some form of knowledge about stuff, about what's happened or what's going to happen or whatever. Yeah, you kind of do begin to wonder because it's being framed in this way that, like, obviously she wasn't being delusional when she saw Boreal, and it's kind of like, are we... Let's believe maybe his mum actually isn't ill. Maybe she knows things that make her seem ill, but she isn't. Mm. I don't like that. I'm not keen on that. And this is maybe what I was getting at earlier, where I was kind of like the portrayal of mentally ill people as not actually being ill is a bit risky, maybe. Yeah, it's not It's not a trope that I'm fond of mm. because it kind of sort of glamorises it not yeah. like anyone's going to go out and be like oh, I'm going to be mentally ill now that's yeah. not how it works it, it makes a it makes a role model out of what is essentially a symptom of a genuine medical condition yeah, yeah and it it just makes things a little bit like mm. it's not, yeah it's, and also it's just a tired trope as well it's, it's been done to death the everyone thinks they're mad but actually they're, they're not, not mad. yeah but I, I do believe that it's maybe not quite that way in the books 
and we might be I might be misreading it here but it feels that way to me that that's yeah. what we're getting at but but it is in the books that there are other things at play that cause mental illness in our world that aren't necessarily what we think of them as and yeah. I guess it's kind of a bit too far ahead but you know we, we can leave that for big spoilers maybe yeah but you know she she's essentially talking as if she can see something in his future maybe she can maybe she can't maybe it's standard mum talk you're just like your dad your dad was great you'll be great yeah. But it's kind of the way it's framed that made me think that. But she does talk about his dad kind of being a good person mm. and that he wanted to help and protect people. Yeah. Which is interesting because I never saw um, John Parry in that way when I read it. Mm. But then again, a long time since I've read it. So. Yeah, and John Parry's a kind of a bit player. I mean, yeah. he's sort of dead. By the time the books start, so everything we know about him secondhand, although yeah. it is here to be fair. So yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see if they portray him differently. Yeah, or if he's given more of a sort of character. Yeah, characterised through the storytelling, yeah. we might even get some flashbacks about him. Who knows? That is something they Who could knows? do. As but- they're talking, his his mum's kind of seeming quite positive about all this stuff, and then suddenly she kind of breaks a little and she says, "Someone's been in the house." Um, something's not right the yeah. carpet's been disturbed and... yeah Will is clearly like really concerned about it yeah tries to sort of tell her to calm down but she doesn't and she goes through the house into the bedroom and kind of finds in this little hidden spot like a folder full of letters yeah so she's checking that they're still there mm. she seems very relieved that they're still there as well mm-hmm. but she does refuse to tell Will about the letters in the folder yeah. what's in it she says that they're letters from his father, mm. but she won't let him see them. Sure. And th- this is where I start to wonder if it's all meant to be that she knows about the multiverse and obviously yeah. someone coming to you and being like, my husband's not dead, he's travelling between worlds and parallel dimensions, etc. You'd go, I-, I think you need to talk to somebody. Yeah. But why would you be chill with the fact that your husband had gone to another universe for 13 years? Well, she's probably not chill about it. She doesn't strike me as very chill overall. And I guess in the context of him being a Marine, so Marines aren't special forces in Britain, but they're elite forces. Mm. Um, Like the job of a Marine is to do dangerous stuff. And as a member of the Marines family, you'd have to live with that. And maybe initially, if he says, I'm going on an expedition to another world, he'd be like, well, at least you're not going back to Afghanistan. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, at any given time, a member of the military, if they're out on a mission, doesn't matter where they are, what it is, the family could receive that knowledge that they've died, that they're not coming back. Mm. So, you know, I don't think she's necessarily chill, but that's just a reality of... Yeah, that life. Yeah. She does also mention that she doesn't want to let him read them because she wants to keep him safe. Yeah. Which indicates that whatever is in those letters puts him in danger. Yeah. Is that going to be something about the other worlds thing? Is there more, like you say, that we mm. that we don't know about the situation? Yeah, and that danger might not be the literal danger you think of. It might just mm. be protecting him from what's happened to her, which is people thinking she's mad. Yeah. If that is indeed what's happening. Yeah. Back in the north. Mm-hmm. Dinner time for bears and children. Yeah. Yorick's Maybe this got... is the teddy bear's picnic. Yes. Yorick has got a nice whatever... It is dear. Like a reindeer, maybe. Yeah, something. Santa won't be happy. Mm-mm. And Lyra has got bread and eggs. From Marcos. Mm-hmm. Do you like a boiled egg? I do. So not a bad snack. No, quite a good one, in fact. Yeah. And they talk about the solitary nature of bears and... Not having a demon. Yeah. He gets a little bit, like, grumbly at her at first for leaning on him. 
Yeah, and then she's like, but you're dead warm. And he's like, mm. keep warm then. I love his voice, it's so good. Oh, I wish Mads Mickelson would say, keep warm then to me. <laughs> you want to snuggle up with Mads Mickelson while he eats a dead reindeer? Well, when you put it like that, how could I not? <laughs> <laughs> um, they kind of have a chat where they establish that Yorick is no longer a Svalbard bear. Yeah. I love the way he says Svalbard bear. I can't quite do it. He's like, no, no I'm not going to try. Svalbard I thought about... bear. Yeah, he's got a bit of an accent. Oh, love it. But he once was. He was noble, in fact. Yes, he was a prince. Yeah. Until he killed another bear. And, and... was exiled. Yeah. But when Lyra asks, like, who it was that he killed, he comes back with it's not who he killed, but, but why, why he killed that yeah. is important. So it implies that perhaps it wasn't really in Yorick's nature to do that. Mm, well, he says he wasn't being himself then. Yeah. Because bears shouldn't kill other bears. So what was making him do that? And is that going to be important mm-hmm. to the rest of the plot? Uh, he thinks as well that Lord Asriel is not going to escape if he's with the Svalbard bears. Yeah. Lyra <laughs> says, no, he'll trick his way out, trust me. But Yorick says bears are untrickable. Yes. They see tricks as plain as arms and legs. Straight out of the book, love it. Yeah. I did really like the bit when Lyra's telling Yorick about how good Lord Asriel is at lying and she basically tells him like her story. Yeah, he tricked me into thinking that he, he was, was my, my uncle. uncle and he's my dad and then she didn't tell me who my mother was and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like this really tragic tale but she's telling yeah. him like it's a great thing. Yeah, and, and Yorick just turns around and says, but you're not a bear. And then Lyra says, you're wrong. Some part of me is definitely bear. What? Second what moment from Lyra there. <laughs> are you losing it a bit, Lyra? Because Azrael's not in the sky and you are not a bear. Are you See, feeling okay? I thought it was quite a nice little bonding moment between them. She's kind of saying, you know, I am actually tough and showing that she sort of admires his bear likeness and mm. she's being a little bit funny and stuff. And while it might not show that Yorick's kind of absorbing that humour, I don't know, it feels like there's a sort of companionability to them. Companionship between them is maybe what you were looking for. Yeah. (laughs) Also, in like 20 years' time, there's going to be a big scandal when it turns out that a young woman named Lyra, who works for a bear rights charity, is in fact not part bear. (laughs) Well, yeah, there is also that. Because, like you pointed out, our our bears are kind of race... Well, Well, I mean, they're a sentient-speaking, living being. With their own culture. With their own culture. And um, is it is it like is it okay to just say that you're a bear like that? I don't know. Apparently it is. Yorick doesn't seem that upset, but but other bears might be. Yeah, maybe we're just diving too much into that statement. <laughs> but it struck you enough anyway. Yeah, I just thought it was an odd thing to say at first, and then the more I thought about it, the the more I constructed elaborate weirdness around it. Mm. Anyway, we're back in Will's Oxford. And he is tempted to look at those letters. Yeah, he goes in and finds them, and she catches him. And she says, I've thought about it, and you can read them. Yeah. But he doesn't. Yeah. Why do you think he doesn't? I genuinely don't know. Maybe we'll find out later. Maybe it's that he, well, he knows they're from his dad. Maybe he doesn't want to get upset by it. Mm. Maybe he's scared of what they'll say. Mm. That they'll say something that he didn't know about his dad. That maybe his dad abandoned them or something. I don't know. I think he's a little bit scared maybe about upsetting his mum. Yeah. By saying, 
oh, no, I was just coming to kiss you goodnight or whatever, he's basically saying, I don't care about that. What I'm focused on is you. Could be. And I wonder as well, though, if... So if my weird opining about her not being ill but just knowing things that no, no one else knows is true, could it be that he sort of somehow remembers that those letters have got something to do with triggering her apparent illness? Or I don't know. Mm. If he's If his dad's been gone for 13 years... He probably wouldn't remember when those letters ever arrived. So you've just undone your own argument. Yeah. Cut to the north. <laughs> Lyra and Yorick arrive at the village. And it is deserted. Yeah. And Lyra asks him if he's scared. And Yorick says, when I am, I will master the fear. Straight mm. out of the book yet again. Good. Yeah. And then they pass through this apparently deserted village. It's all very atmospheric. Even Yorick feels like there's something wrong. Yeah. So un- unlike the books, we don't get any interactions with the villagers no no confrontation no, no sheriff style guy steps out to block their path with a rifle or any of that they just kind of approach this fishing hut at the edge of the village mm-hmm. uh, with pan in tow as a fox oh, he acts super cute can i just say oh. he's, he's scared and he's doing little canines fear whimpers and and yeah and you're just like i'm sorry pan um it's quite surprising, actually, that Lyra does decide to go in alone because Yorick does offer to go in with her. Yeah, and she she's like, no, no, you can not stay really here. sure why. No, I mean, she does say, like, watch our backs effectively, but if I was going in there, I'd want Yorick near. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. What she does do is chant to herself kind of about mastering her fear. So yeah. based on what Yorick said earlier, she's like, what, what did she say? When I am scared, I will master, master my, my fear. fear. Yeah. And she also tells Pan not to make her look scared in front of Yorick because <laughs> he's really hanging back and yeah. tail between legs, head down, classic yeah. dog-like fear behaviour. Yeah. And he does try to talk her out of it. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, come on, go back. It's, there's something not right here. We shouldn't be here. What I did want to say at this point was that we have not seen a lot of Pan in this episode up until... No. We really haven't. We've, we've seen probably more of Kaiser. Mm. A screenshot of someone's... That's confusing. On a Facebook group, a screenshot of someone's Twitter conversation <laughs> um, with Jack Thorne, who's one of the writers, and he was kind of saying we had to use a lot of the budget on Irik. Irik? Yorick. Wow, slipped up on that one. Yeah. On Yorick this week. So we decided to make pan a mouse for the majority of the episode but do you see him as a mouse Mm-mm. because unless you show that it just looks like she doesn't have a demon yeah and i think that's a prevailing problem that we can mm-hmm. discuss throughout because shortly and, and and it's becoming a bigger problem if you ask me because they go into this hut yes and inside it is a child as she steps in it's billy costa Yep. He's counting for some reason. I can't, I'm not sure why. He's just slowly counting. He acts like she's not there. Mm-hmm. He's obviously delirious. He's looking kind of beat up. I think bits of him look cut and yeah, maybe he looks swollen. Bit bloody around the lips and on the hair a bit. Yeah, and, and he's got he's a shaved head. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the reason his head looks bloody is because he's been shaved roughly. He's very, again, he's very kind of refugee slash concentration camp looking, isn't he? It's very mm. evocative imagery in his kind of standard issue jumpsuit yeah and she kind of i mean pan's very hesitant even at seeing him he's quite upset and she sort of asks like where's ratta i think it's actually pan that points it out yeah you're right he points it out and she kind of tries to talk to him but he's just not reacting to anything she says Mm -hmm. and so she travels back with him at top speed to the egyptians yeah and they're, they're camped in this crashed airship 
Oh, yeah, which is really random. Yeah, I was a bit confused at first. I was like, did they put walls up? No, it's a crashed airship. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Can we just talk about that scene that just was, though? Because this is quite a pivotal scene Yeah. in terms of just the Northern Lights yes. book. So it's one of my favourite scenes. Yeah, it's the, the scene where it would be Tony Macarios, but as we know... Yeah. So some of the differences that we have in this are... It is a different person to start off with. He also doesn't talk. So right. in the books, we have um, Tony Macarius asking, where's Rata? Have you seen my Rata? Will she yeah. find me? He, he doesn't really communicate in any meaningful way. He doesn't really respond to people. He just keeps asking for Rata. Yeah. And he's holding like this, this piece of dried fish to him closely. As if it's Rata. Yeah. yeah. And... Pam feels this urge to comfort him, but can't because of the demon other people taboo thing yeah um so those are some kind of key points of that that scene yeah because pe- people aren't allowed to touch each other's demons mm-hmm. so pan even though he really wants to comfort this distraught child can't because of the taboo which speaks of the wider kind of establishment of the importance of demons in the books than what we've had in the show yeah um and sorry carry on no 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 so they arrive back at the camp at the Egyptian camp, mm. and Mark Costa seems to realise straight away. Yeah, the first question on everyone's lips is always like, "Where's Ratta? What's happened to Ratta?" Etc. Yeah. Where's his demon? Basically. Yeah. And she sort of gathers Billy up, and she's very distressed, as is everyone, and runs off. And Lyra's going to follow, and Lee says, "No, like, trust me, they love you, but they're going to want to be alone right now." Yeah. And he also notes that this must be why they take the children. Yeah. And and Lyra's kind of like, "But why?" And he's like, this must be what they do. It's about control. If you remove someone's soul, you can do anything. Yeah. Yeah, which is somewhat expositionary again. It's a bit levered in. It kind of works. Yeah. Yorick then pads off. Yeah. Lee says he can't. He can't deal with emotion. He'll be back by morning. Also conveniently gets rid of him for what's about to happen next. Yeah. I'll just say. Um, And then the end of the scene is Lee Scoresby telling... Lyra that he's proud of her. Now, what I want to say about that little bit is it's kind of surprising when everyone points out straight away that, that he's got no demons. demons. This is exactly what I was going to say, because we see so few demons and yeah. so many side characters, their demons aren't visible, that it's almost like, what's the difference? As a viewer, Billy doesn't look that different to half of the people in that scene and yeah. that you can't see his demon. And yeah. I just don't think... I think it's becoming problematic that they're no, they're not showing enough demons. And again, I don't think they could show everyone's demons, but it just feels like they need some more to establish that they're there to hide the fact that they're obviously missing. Yeah, that's it. I think it's it's when they're very obviously not there. Yeah. When when main characters walk around and do things and they're not even as yeah so like in this episode for instance with pan if they were going to be like okay we can't afford to do lots of pan shots in this he's going to be a mouse show a little scene at the beginning of him poking out of her like top or nestling down in a pocket to show that he's that's where he's going to be for the rest of the episode she could even i mean i know she doesn't talk to him that much and maybe that's because they were eventually like probably can't afford to show him so cut the interactions with each other maybe that's where some of the kind of levered in dialogue from other characters Mm. comes from is they had to farm it off at the last minute because pan was meant to say it couldn't but you know what lyra can talk to pan when we can't see him if he's a mouse in her pocket she can talk into her pocket we hear 
Pan's voice come out of it and we go, Pan's in her pocket. It might be a bit odd, but at least we know the demon's there. Yeah. There's ways that they could get around it. And of all the things I thought I'd be saying, this is quite bad by episode five, it wasn't the fact that we don't get to see demons ever. I'm like, God damn it, that's 101. It's his dark materials. Show me fucking demons for yeah. God's sake. I think a it's lot of... starting to be a problem now for like the storytelling to some extent because it makes important moments just seem weird. Yeah, I've seen online different views on this. I mean, some people are like us. Well, some people have been from the very beginning have been like, there aren't enough demons. Some people are like us have kind of got to that point gradually where we're like, actually, yeah, mm. there really aren't. Um, some people are just saying, well, they've said it's because of CGI and budgeting issues, you've just got to accept it. Yeah. But I think I was okay with it, like you said, until that point where it started interfering with the story. So for people now who aren't book readers, I don't think that bit with Billy Costa will have had any kind of emotional impact anywhere near the same amount as it does in the book. I think it will have had an impact, but I think in the book it's massive. Yeah. Because by then you really know the importance of demons. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's built up through the way they interact with their humans, through conversations that the humans have, through conversations they have with their demons. And I wouldn't necessarily expect them to have spent that amount of time on those conversations in the TV show. But the fact that we rarely even see even key characters' demons. I mean, mm. we talked before about like how often do you see Father Coram's demon? Mark Hoster's distraught and I can't remember seeing her demon the whole episode it may have been shown but not enough for me to really key into it and it's a bit like that's a soul it's an emotional part of a person but we're starting to lose a sense of what it's like to have your demon removed because so many people wander around without them aesthetically demonless yeah yeah so it it doesn't seem like as much mm. Um, and if I think if you didn't have Pan sort of saying, where's Billy's demon yeah. or where's Ratter, most people would just be like, oh, he's injured. Yeah, that's the, that's the key. That's the thing. Like, characters are having to tell us that the demon's removed before we notice. Yeah. And they might have to anyway, but it would be much obvious. It would be much more conspicuously missing if everyone's were. You know, Marcosta, where's Ratter? Where the fuck's your demon, Marcosta? Have you been intercised? <laughs> <laughs> Intercisioned, whatever yeah. it is. Um, yeah, and I, I think that that became more of a problem for me. Uh, the more I thought about the episode as well. I mean, it jumped mm. out at me straight away, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I don't like this. Yeah. I like the fact that you also pointed out that even um, Will and his mum have a cat. They do. <laughs> like, even they get an <laughs> but animal that, is that a real follows cat. them around. It yeah. is. And I think it's meant to emphasise the difference between animals in our world are just always animals, but in their world, they're your soul. Not everyone's. Some people, we never see their soul, but, you know. What Ooh. else? Gripe, gripe, gripe. Yeah. Eventually, we get past the gripiness to see the Costas essentially on Death Watch, looking mm. over Billy, and Mark Costas soothing him and singing to him. And oh, this God. was emotional. She yeah. she says it, basically it's okay. You can go to Ratter now. Oh God, that Tony's did... like. Ugh. I say all of that little rant that I just had, but this this scene did get me. I think because I'm still thinking about the book version that I know and I'm still in that thing of like the pain of like not the having your demon awesome. yeah yeah and when she says like you can go to Ratten out I think I, I got sort of get teary-eyed my dad asked me a question I turned around and I was just like <laughs> <laughs> I mean I found it emotional too and it partly because it reminded me of like what it's like when people die 
I yeah. think because it was quite well played and quite yeah. well written. And for all we can fault the kind of lack of demons, that's a CGI department budget thing. That's not the writer or actor's fault, and they still yeah. played this scene well. They did. I think both um, Tony and Mark Costa were very good in this scene of that kind of that grief. Just a bit when Mark Costa starts singing and Tony's kind of looking at Billy and just he has this like single tear down his face and it's mm. just like it's really heartrending. And I also thought when Billy does that big sigh when he dies as well. Yeah, that kind of almost relief. Sort yeah. Of. <sighs> yeah. And then he's gone. Ugh. And then obviously Mark Costa is pretty distraught, distraught and yeah. the pair of them hug and cry. But where are their demons? Where are they? Yeah, in these emotional moments. Stretch the budget to it, please. Yeah. They might be in the corner where we, or like in, in, they might be there and we just haven't seen. But the fact that neither of us can remember seeing them means that they weren't there enough because they yeah. should be right there. We do, we do just need to see some of the emotional bond sometimes. That might have been enough to hide that not everyone's demons were present. There's yeah. something, I'm not saying render everyone's demon because that is expensive and difficult, but, but give us enough to hide the fact yeah. that you're not doing that. Yeah. It's a shame. But then we go back to Will's Oxford. And he's in bed. Yeah, and his mum's watching him sleep. <laughs> then she she will never do that. Probably, I wouldn't know, I was asleep. She probably still does it now if she's got half a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, his mum lets the cat in um, yeah. because it's meowing, but realises the front door is open. And she's being watched. Yeah, a, a car drives past and it lights up the pale man mm. who's sat in his car watching her. Yeah, and, and she gets very flustered at this and mm. she basically turns and starts counting wooden panels obsessively on the wall. I can also say that as she was kind of heading downstairs, um, before she heard the cat meow, she was doing a light switch, yeah, counting the light switch on and off. So clearly obsessive behaviour is part of her issues. Yeah. Um, and I guess now at least there is a reason for the cat beyond showing us a cat that is not a demon because it's the cat that kind of alerts her to the front door. Yes. Um, then we we also, I've noticed that they use little introductions of, you know, Billy doing this for a moment or Billy's family doing that for a moment to remind us that we're going to our world, to Will's world, because then we cut to the meatier part of this scene, which is Boreal visiting his hacker accomplice. Yeah. Um, who's discovered that John Parry set up a bank account which pays dun, like dun, a... Dun. Dun, 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 dun little subsistence uh, payout every month to Will's mum. And he sort of says, the money's not important. It's the fact that out of all the missions he went on, this is the one when he decided she might need to be looked after long term, so he must have known. And I think he knew he was going to your world, mm. etc., going through the window, as he calls it. And that possibly some of the answers about how much John Parry did know... Are in the Parry house. Yeah. Mm, not good. Not great at all. He also seems to be enjoying himself now, Mr. Hacker. I yeah, like this game. He's a of cat really mouse. bizarre character in that he is like, he's not really a character, but he's just kind of coming into like that line at the end. It's just very odd. It's just very. I guess we've got to wonder what his motivations are. I mean, Boreal must be paying him, maybe, but yeah, I suppose we need to get a sense of him being more than just a hacker for hire. Maybe yeah. he's a bit sinister now he's enjoying the mouse hunt. I feel like he's not long for this world. 
I think that Boreal will probably do him in. I think Boreal will mm. do in anybody that knows too much and that won't be missed. Yeah. That'd I feel cool. like you'd have to be quite careful about that if you're a hacker getting sensitive information. Yeah, because if you find out something that you're not meant to know and the wrong people know you know it... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if Boreal does anything weird at the parry house, he's probably going to cut all ties with that, which will include the hacker. Yeah. Maybe, once he's got what he wants out of him. Mm-hmm. Back to the north. And Lee wakes Lyra to basically tell her of Billy's death. Yeah. I did... I like the way that Hester was sat looking concerned next to Lee at yeah, this And we get an emotional shot of a demon, exactly yeah, what we want. Because they're both concerned, because there's a, there's a little moment before Lee wakes her up where he looks a little bit tired and a little bit worried, and then Hester's her nose, is little, her little, little hair nose is twitching. Yeah, and she looks worried. very small. He kind of, he indicates that Billy may have died of exposure rather than demon removal. Um, he does. And in the books, we kind of wondered about, like, why do some people die when their demons are removed and some don't? And it never occurred to me that he might have died of exposure and that without mm. that, he might have actually survived the demon removal. Yeah, because there is some talk in the books of it being to do with shock and things. Yeah. So I think it would probably make you quite shocked and weak. But, yeah, I think with um, Tony slash Billy, it's probably a case of he's been... Yeah, or well, can clarify Tony Makarios for the non-book readers, oh, yeah. not Tony Costa, <laughs> because that's going to get confusing that yeah. Tony Makarios and Tony Costa... So, yeah, in the book, Makarios, in the TV show, Costa, Billy, mm-hmm. have been wandering around demonless in the cold and ice, probably without food and water. Yeah. Lyra realises that Billy Costa is dead mm. before Lee, Lee even tells it. her. Yeah. He just knows by the look on his face, I think. Yeah. And she asks to, to see him, and mm. he's like, yeah, of course. And I do like the sensitivity that goes on between them here. I like the fact that Lee changes. He basically becomes serious at this point. It's like he knows that this is not the time for the joking and the sarcasm, and he realises that he's got Lyra there and she's a child who's just experienced something quite awful yeah. and he needs to look after her. Maybe I judged his presence in this episode a bit too harshly, but I would still say with all the sarcastic bits, there maybe didn't need to be as much of it. Maybe mm-hmm. the, the the episode wouldn't have suffered for not having as much of Lee being sarcastic. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but they do go to see Billy's body and he's essentially on his funeral pyre and the Egyptians are already beginning to gather for the funeral. Yeah. Um, Lyra takes a look at him and she cries. Yeah. Which is really... And John Farr makes a sort of mini speech that, you know, this is it, we have to fight. And Mark Costa says, we have to kill. Mm-hmm. She's really mad. And then she lights Billy's pyre and then the Egyptians sing a sort of funerary song, oh. which are... Yeah, it's quite <laughs> was, effective. Yes, I thought that was interesting. I especially thought it was interesting because there was mention of God in that song and God... Um, being there for you Mm. and i realized that we don't really get an idea of what the religion is for the egyptians what their spirituality is like often we don't hear any discussion of religion at all unless it's in connection with the magisterium just as a power structure rather than as anything to do with faith so possibly because the egyptians are outside of normal society do they have a different approach to the church to to god or to religion i mean i guess they're kind of their own church yeah, there's a really nice shot of all the demons looking really sad. Yeah, we needed more of that sooner. Yeah, that's quite beautiful because it's well, it's them that's getting cut off, isn't it? Yeah, and it's sad for them too. Again, they're the sole 
You all right there? Yeah. We're back. In Wells Oxford. In the Parry household. He's asleep. I thought, interestingly here, lights, red lights illuminate his mm. face, almost as if a car is reversing into the driveway. Yes, that's what I assumed. Wow. They use light a lot in this, actually, in terms of, like, car lights and headlights and things at night. So it's quite a nice way of presenting information visually, of revealing things. So, like, the reveal of as the car headlights illuminate the, the pale man watching mm. the Costa house and here... We're kind of given an indication that maybe someone's arrived by the lights. Medium specific again, which is what I'm a house. big fan of, you know. Arriving at the Parry house, sorry. <laughs> I'm God, I'm getting like you with all these mispronounced names. I'm mispronouncing them so bad they sound like totally different names. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the north. Random men. Sneak into the camp. I've just decided to do it as a musical now. Okay. <laughs> Demon cast the musical. <laughs> The Egyptians are killed. Yeah, they silently sort of kill the sentries. Can I just say one of the sentries they kill is Jeff Bell? And at the beginning of the series, I sort of thought that maybe that particular Egyptian might play a bigger role because they'd cast Jeff Bell. And yeah. he's like a reasonably well-known sort of character actor, I think. Maybe it's... he's just fallen a bit on hard times. Yeah, I mean, I'd take the job if they offered it oh, to yeah. me. He did appear quite a lot. Like outside of the core, you know, Coram Far Costa group he was one of the egyptians that got a bit more to do but still i kind of wondered if they'd give him even more to do than that apparently not he's dead now confirmed yeah. by the fact that his demon evaporates into sparkles oh he's got a cute little squirrel and when he goes to pee the squirrel's just kind of watching him pee as you do that's and a cute little squirrel breaks his neck and the squirrel just i thought he slit his throat no he breaks his neck oh, okay. it do, they do cut and stab other people but his yeah. neck gets broken but it was good to see another demon disin- i mean not good but you know to see another <laughs> demon disintegration see <laughs> yeah this is where i said it was convenient that yorick didn't deal with emotion well because oh. if he'd have been here he'd have been able to defend the camp so he this would. kind of conveniently gets around that um because it's slightly different in, than in the books, because in the books it's a massive like yeah, snowstorm. They're, they're ambushed in a snowstorm mm. as they walk, and Yorick does fight, but because they're taken so by surprise, Lyra gets taken away. But in this, Lyra just sort of wakes up a bit confused and goes yeah. out to see what's going on and gets clonked over the head. Yeah. I think this is my own personal judgment. I thought it was really weird that she was sharing a tent with Lee Scoresby. I was just like... Shouldn't she be in with Mark Costa? Um, yeah, that's a yeah, fair she, point. But then I'm like, but yeah, but she's a child. But then I'm like, oh, but she's twelve. Like, at what point does it? I can't remember at what point it starts becoming weird for that sort of thing to to, to share a bed with a man you've only just met when you're a child. <laughs> I can't remember the point at which it isn't weird. It's like I can't remember the point at which when I was a kid and I had a bath, like Dad used to sit and and make sure I didn't drown, basically. basically yeah, but there, there would have been a point. To. Where I said to him, I don't want you to come in anymore. Or like when yeah. I was changing, I don't want you to come in anymore. Well, I, mean, I, I can't remember when that was. I, I suspect it's because what happened was you got old enough that your dad knew you were safe in the bath and didn't come in anymore. <laughs> like, I suspect you probably didn't have to tell him not to. Oh, yeah. He was just like, oh, you're, you're a big girl now, Sarah. You can have a bath on your own. And you were probably like, yeah, I'm a big girl. And what he meant was like, you are now safe in the bath and it would be weird for me to continue looking at you naked when I have no reason to well, do no, so. no, because sometimes Dad used to read to us in the bath or just generally, like, chat to us, I guess. Okay. But even still, yeah. I would have thought there was a point when he'd be like, "There is this is reasonless and I shall discontinue. I wonder whether there is a sad moment for parents when their kid goes, I don't want you to 
watch me anymore or I don't want you to be in the room. Not in a terms of like, oh, because the parents want to watch their kids change in a creepy Because way. they know their because kids then, growing up. Yeah, there's yeah. that I'd imagine thing. that happens a lot. And you're like, yeah, okay, that's that's fine, but also... There's probably baby. a pride to it as well, though. It's a bit sad. It's a bit pride, prideful, I'd imagine, when you mm. see your kid growing up. But I would imagine that nine times out of ten parents realise before kids that they're not needed there anymore and it's probably them that backs off. Not mm. every time, I'm sure, but, you know. Even still, you're talking about your dad bathing you, which is fairly standard dad behaviour. Now, if a balloon captain <laughs> who you'd only met two to three days before was bathing you, I don't think that's ever not weird. You're saying that doesn't happen to everyone? I'm guessing not. She's 12. Different times, isn't it? Different, different times, different, times, different, different, different universes, isn't it? It was different universes back saying, then. It was fine I, for men to touch. Just I mean, point, to. <laughs> I'm not by any means saying that I think that there is any kind of inappropriateness going on there. I just thought it just kind of struck me as that's a bit odd. Yeah, I think the problem is we're we're jaded living in the real world, mm. in the fantasy world. That's fine. Yeah, because he's just a balloon guy. Yeah, and also in kids' books and stuff, that'd be fine because it's aimed at kids. Kids aren't going to think as cynically as us about that. They're just going to mm. be like, oh, Lee's like the hero. He'll protect Lyra. But yeah. we're jaded adults who live in a kind of society where we have to realise that people who were once considered heroes are in fact villains and things like that. So, mm. This you know. is true. This is true. Bolvengar! <laughs> I've written big, because that's where Lyra wakes up, although she hasn't realised it yet, yeah. but she's been taken into... I thought it was the end of the episode when she got, like, snuck out. up on, yeah, and yeah. I was just like, oh, ready for the credits, and then I was like, oh, no, more things are happening. Yeah, and I, I wonder if that was a bit of a timing thing of, like, once they'd cut some demon stuff they couldn't afford, they realised that they couldn't end the episode there, yeah. so they went on a bit. Because it did feel a little bit odd to... Have her wake up. But also yeah. it was kind of a nice surprise because sometimes when you're enjoying something, you're happy it doesn't end. Yeah, I suppose as well it would have been a bit too much like the end of, was it the second episode when she gets Where kidnapped? Where she got netted and So it was like, it'd be a bit like, hand. oh, well, not again. Yeah. You get a little bit of point of view, mm, which of is her, quite interesting. Yeah, from her perspective, yeah. you see kind of it looks like a series of connected concrete bunkers. Yeah. They're quite sort of squat quite bunker-esque and you see the Tartars and their wolves and they're speaking a language that I don't think is Russian. Rumour has it, it's Finnish. I was going to say, actually, it could be Finnish mm-hmm. and that makes sense, but I, I couldn't confirm because I don't know Finnish. Yeah, that that's, that's a... just what the internet told me earlier. When well, I I, I'd believe it <laughs> because I always connect Finnish with Russian because of obviously the Soviet occupation. So for some reason, when I was like, that's not Russian, I did think, I wonder if it's Finnish. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah. So they take her inside one of these buildings. Um, she's all sort of tied up. And she gives her name as Lizzie Brooks, which is yeah, like the book. She's... Being processed by this woman, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, and she realises that basically she needs to mm. not give her real name. Yeah, and she she's... says... The woman sort of says, oh, and is this your demon? What is he, a weasel or something? No, ferret. A she's ferret, a ferret, sorry. But it's all, a, it's all a kind of cover for her to make a grab at Pan, which forces him to change and fly away. And then she's like, yeah. ah... So we're not too late or something like that. <laughs> She's young enough. Yeah. Yeah. The woman's clearly very pleased about this. And as a result, Lyra's untied. Uh, none of the nurses or women have visible demons, which is not unusual in the series. Oh, but so I, I think it matters here. Yeah, because in the books, their demons are weird. That's what I mean. As yeah. in, like, it's it just... In the books, it's implied maybe their demons have been severed, but they've survived or something. There's an odd thing with them and their demons. No demons here. Does it matter? 
Maybe you, in this they're not meant to have demons, but like no one's got demons hardly. So good God, what the fuck? <laughs> and the woman comments that Lyra looks on the verge of change and mm. therefore she needs to be treated urgently. She's category A. Doesn't sound good, does it? Doesn't sound great. So Lyra's kind of taken through by a blank-looking nurse with a blank-looking space where her demon should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of instructed to change. And... Yeah, I didn't like this bit. It made me very uncomfortable. And I think mm. it was kind of meant to. Yeah. Because she even, Lyra even says, like, everything. everything off. Yeah. So, you know, you, you arrive in this place and you're a, you're a little child without your parents and you're told to basically strip naked in front of mm. strangers and she does say yeah we'll, we'll get you some nice fresh clothes and she opens a cupboard and what should be in there mm-hmm. uh, but the standard issue jumpsuit of the type that billy was wearing and that's when she realizes pan sort of flits to her side as a moth and says do you see it oh no we're in bolvanga yeah that's the end of the episode yeah. next time on his dark materials which we won't go yeah. into i thought that end little bit that scene was quite good yeah I did, apart from the, again, conspicuously missing demons. Yeah. Um, it was all nice, sinister, prison-y, concentration campy, people being processed, people being treated as things or assets. Mm-hmm. Daphne Keane did a good job of being quite vulnerable in that last bit as well. Yeah. Of She's still kind of lying a little bit, but there's a sort of certain amount of hesitation there. Mm-hmm. And she does seem a little bit kind of small and in on herself. Yeah. Um, it's going to be... I don't know whether exciting is the right word from the next time on. I, well, it looks quite exciting. Potentially we get, I don't know, should we say, should we call spoilers now for safety? Maybe. Just for safety so we can talk freely. Are we, are we or, sure we're done talking about everything else? Yeah, well, because I was going to say potentially we'll get this in the next episode, but that's potentially spoilerous. Mm. So maybe I won't say that just yet. But yeah, it could be an exciting episode. It's certain to be an episode full of intrigue, I think. Mm-hmm. And possibly quite uh, like affecting imagery. Yeah. So if you are a non-spoiler person, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We do. As always, please find us on our social media or email us. All the links are available in the show notes. Yeah. Rate, review, as we often say. Uh, won't harp on about that. Write but... us a message in the sand and then post it on Instagram. Yes, do that. I'm trying up... to think of alternative ways that they can contact us. Yeah, but definitely definitely go and have a look at the Instagram because Sarah runs that and she's trying to grow it and she shares some of her original artwork on there. Artwork which people are calling for you to turn into merchandise. I'll just point that out and leave that there. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. No. We love you and goodbye. And now those guys are gone. We can talk it's spoilers. Not, I feel like we need to, like, guys, it's just us. It's the cool kids. Not no, that I'm at all slagging don't, off the... don't do the in and out crowd thing. That's <laughs> terrible. Stop it. What are your spoilers? What are my spoilers? I don't actually know. I think it was more you that you you are normally spoiler guy. So so my spoiler thing that I talked about earlier in the episode and then said I'd leave it there was in connection to Will's mum's mental illness because in this I'm sort of seeing that I think it might be getting framed as she's not actually ill. She just knows things about the multiverse, etc. and people think she's ill because of that. But in the books, it is indicated in, oh, is it Subtle Knife or Amber Spyglass when they go to Sitagaze, uh, the city of the dead or the damned or whatever it's called. When they're sort of discussing the real issue with dust in the books, it's kind of indicated that the, what are they called now, the spectres? are maybe responsible for mental illness in our world because the spectres essentially 
as dust clings to you, they come and are attracted to it and feed off of you. And it, mm. in Lyra's world, in the world with demons, it sort of turns you into a bit of a blank, almost zombifies you. But then there's some talk of like, maybe that's what happens to the mentally ill in our world, where your demon is an inner demon. Maybe it creates mental illness and stuff. That's kind of a mm. speculation from the books. So I just, I was about to say that and yeah. then I realised that was spoilery. Yeah. As a as a mentally ill person, <laughs> as a nut job, yeah, as as a you know professional, crazy. I don't really like stuff like that. No, because it kind of downplays the reality. Yeah, and, and that's probably the worst thing about mental illness is that the reality is either misunderstood or downplayed. Yeah, or just you know it's real, it's mundane. It's like this isn't. It's not sexy. Yeah, it's like... It's not a cool thing in a story. No, it's not it's saying, life. like, cancer is caused by pixies. That's the yeah. equivalent. Yeah, no, <laughs> no one would actually do that. You know, people do sort of portray the mentally ill as, like, they're actually an oracle, they're not ill at yeah. all. Oh, and it's like, no, you no, You wouldn't say I'm that just... of, like, AIDS, would you? Oh. You wouldn't be like, you've not actually got a terrible disease that's about to kill you. You are, in fact, going to ascend and be with the aliens and we should all aspire to that. Yeah, it's sometimes trying to be positive about things in a way can be almost as bad yeah it can be a bit bit miss bit of a misunderstanding Do, maybe disrespectful yeah. i think when when you kind of put it down to something external like that it i'm not i'm not saying anyone's going to read that and think oh that's the reason that i'm mentally ill yeah i mean they might but i guess it takes the responsibility away from you and i'm not saying that people are responsible for their own mental illnesses but you are responsible for to a certain extent for taking care of yourself yeah and if i believed it was something external to me i wouldn't do the things i need to do to look after myself yeah you might disengage from treatment yeah uh, and people do that anyway yeah I've, I've met people, I can't go into too much detail about this because of data protection and so on and yeah. just general like pissing people off, but I've met organisations firsthand that discourage mentally ill people from taking their medication, including people with quite serious, there are, there are no fun mental illnesses, but people with really quite serious ones that had followed this advice and were advocating for it and very in my opinion, which I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, but, you know, um, in my opinion, they shouldn't have stopped taking their medication and that was patently obvious from a brief conversation with them. Mm, yeah, I would say that, that when I was young, especially when I was less aware of my problems and didn't have as many coping mechanisms and wasn't on the medication I needed, that... I was prone to some delusional thoughts about what my mental illness was. Okay, yeah. I think we've talked yeah. about that privately. And um, that's quite dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where I'm saying it from. I'm not saying that people are going to read Northern Lights or watch this and, and, you know, become delusional or... I, you know, I don't think a TV show can make you delusional. No, or, or I'm not saying it's, it's overly bad. I'm not I'm not saying, like, cancel Philip Pullman because he said a bad thing about mental health. No. I'm just saying it's an interesting point to bring up, maybe. Yeah. It's... I, and I think this is what I was trying to get at in my roundabout and ham-fisted way is, like is that sort of treatment of it a problem for people with mental health issues? Mm. I think if he'd written it now, maybe it would have been different and maybe it would have been more like the portrayal we saw in the TV show, which was a lot more mm. real and 
gritty and kind of showed how difficult it was for both Will and his mum. Yeah, but I still can't shake that feeling that they might be framing it towards Will's mum knows stuff rather than Will's mum's ill. Maybe it'll turn out that she's ill and she knows stuff. Which is fine because mentally ill people are nuanced and they can be mentally ill but they can also know secret information, you know what I mean? Like... I think well, you get uh, generally mentally ill people can be ill and still highly functional. Yeah. <laughs> as as you are I guess I'm kind of, of proof of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, that involves all the things you talked about, like looking after yourself. Mm. And I guess as well, probably should say it'd be irresponsible for us to say that we believe that medication is the total answer, but it's part of it for quite a lot of people. And yeah. that's important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um turn this into a mental health podcast slightly but also like but it's about time you got another side podcast idea of your own i got one of mine (laughs) sarah talks about i was going to call it sarah talks about bad brains but that's insensitive sarah talks about those times that she doesn't get out of bed for five hours straight or whatever (laughs) would you like to talk about those times I think I'm good. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I mean, that's five hours isn't actually that long because you're asleep for like... Longer. (laughs) Eight hours. Sarah doesn't get out of bed for five hours after she's woken up every day for a month. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this morning, woof, was a tough one getting out of bed, but that's winter, so that's different. Mm. (laughs) Any more spoilers? I don't think so. You? No, I think... I think I would say I'm getting excited to now to to read The Subtle Knife as a result of these little bits of The Subtle Knife coming in. We're getting towards the end of the Northern Lights podcast, so we'll be moving on to rereading Subtle Knife. And it does, the build-up from this is giving me the build-up for that, mm-hmm. the same as you say. Like, because we're getting, you know, three episodes from the end of the TV series, things are yeah. going to get real. Things have already started to get very real for us in the book. Mm-hmm. So... It's nice. It's nice that actually the TV show, although it's not perfect, neither of the books, it's nice that that's building an excitement. It shows they're getting yeah. something right. Yeah. It'll be nice to be able to talk about the Will stuff with a little bit more um, certainty. Well, clarity, <laughs> certainty, all of those things. Because yeah. I, I, it's been a long time since I've read the sort of knife because I think I've read Northern Lights probably more than I have the others. So, yeah. Yeah, I have at this point for sure. So should we leave it there then? Yeah. Thank you to everyone who stayed with us for the spoilers for listening. We hope it was worth your time. It went a little bit weird. I think it was worth saying. Yeah. I do. Wouldn't doubt that for a moment. But please let us know your thoughts through all the means that we pointed out to the others and have done in every episode. We Mm. do appreciate your communications and we love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.